Joseph has been thrown into a well by his brothers, brought to Egypt in a slave caravan, and sold to a high-ranking member of Pharaoh's household. Seen as a safe pair of hands, he has been quickly promoted by his boss. However, he has also caught the eye of his owner's wife, and she seems determined to bring the young Hebrew slave into her bed. Knowing the consequences of sleeping with his master's wife, Joseph resists. The one thing that he may not touch is her, he tells her. Her husband Potiphar has entrusted everything in their household to him, and sleeping with his wife would not only be a betrayal, but would put him in a very poor light with God. Still, Potiphar's wife doesn't give up and continues trying to seduce Joseph on a daily basis. It has to be unimaginably difficult for this teenage boy who can neither escape the woman's amorous advances nor tell Potiphar about them. Added to which, he might even find this woman physically desirable. As an act of damage limitation, he does everything he can to avoid her. One day, when no other servants are in the house, Potiphar's wife is feeling particularly amorous and again demands sex from Joseph. Male slaves in ancient Egypt wear simple skirts and she makes a lunge for his, grabbing the garment in her hand. What Joseph does next determines the whole course of Jewish history. My name is Chas Bayfield and this is Holy Bible, Episode 12, Silver in the Sacks. properly underway, a quick reminder that this is the Bible minus the religion, a seemingly counterintuitive project, but one which might actually persuade people to engage with a book which they may never have opened. As ever, I must advise those listeners of a deeply religious persuasion to remember that the Bible is a book for everyone, not just for people who share the same beliefs as you. And seeing as this is episode 12 and 12 is a good imperial number, you might be wondering why the measurements I use in this podcast are not metric. I had to pick one or the other as it's simply too clumsy and time-consuming to list both. As a Brit, I opted for imperial, even though I live in Australia, which is metric. I also stick to BC and AD rather than CE and BCE. Given that the C of BC and the D of AD feature so prominently in the book, it seems petty not to. The Bible I use as a source is Zondervan's fabulous new international version, UK edition. And so, without more ado, let's cut back to a large house in northern Egypt where the boss is away and his sexually precocious wife is making a bold play for her husband's young slave. As soon as Potiphar's wife lunges at him, Joseph wriggles free and runs outside. With her victim most likely naked and his skirt in her hand, the situation looks bad for both of them. Taking advantage of her superior status, Potiphar's wife screams. Joseph tried to rape her, she tells the rest of her household when they come running. But when she cried out, he left his skirt and fled. She keeps the skirt as proof of the attack and when her husband returns home, he is livid. Unfortunately for Joseph, the man appears to believe his wife's story, but, showing remarkable mercy, he throws his slave in jail rather than killing him on the spot. 
It's possible that Potiphar knows the kind of woman he's married to and gives Joseph the benefit of the doubt, which is why he jails him rather than executes him for gross betrayal and adultery. It's not even a particularly tough jail, but a special one reserved for people who have displeased Egypt's pharaoh, adding weight to the idea that Potiphar is in charge of this facility. Joseph thrives in prison. Genesis again describes how God is with him and makes the prison warden well disposed towards him. The warden gives Joseph a management role, overseeing all the other prisoners, and enjoys an easy ride now that his duties are being taken care of by someone else. Joseph could easily have been broken by the events life has taken. He has gone from cherished son to slave to prisoner. Still, the sense is that God is with him, which allows him to remain positive and make the best of whatever situation he finds himself in. However terrible. Sometime after Joseph is incarcerated, two of Pharaoh's senior employees offend him in some way and also find themselves in prison. One is Pharaoh's cupbearer, the man who tests his food to make sure that it has not been poisoned. The other is his baker, and both are put under Joseph's management. Time passes until one night, both prisoners have a dream. To the ancients, dreams have meanings, and the men are downhearted that they are in jail with no access to anyone who can tell them what it all means. Joseph shares with them his belief that interpreting dreams is a gift from God, no doubt a deity who they have never heard of, and asks to hear what they have seen. The cupbearer's dream is a positive one. A vine with three branches blossoms, buds and produces grapes, which are squeezed into a cup and handed to Pharaoh. Joseph tells him that he will be released within three days, get his job back and do well for himself, and asks him to put in a good word for him to Pharaoh on his release. He adds that he was carried away from the land of the Hebrews by force and was thrown into this jail despite being innocent. The account of Joseph is the first time in the Bible that the word Hebrew is used to describe the northern tribes who live in Canaan. Far from simply referring to those tribes who will ultimately become the Jews, it appears that all the Near Eastern tribes who can trace their ancestry back to the time of Noah are considered Hebrews. The word Hebrew means traverse or pass over, hinting at the nomadic nature of these people. Seeing how the cupbearer's dream receives such a positive interpretation, the baker shares his own dream. He is carrying three baskets of baked goods on his head, and the birds are eating them. This dream has a terrible interpretation. After three days, the man will be beheaded, and his body impaled on a pole where birds will pick at his flesh. Three days later, it is Pharaoh's birthday, and both prisoners are taken to see him while he enjoys a feast with all his officials. As promised by Joseph, the cupbearer is given his job back, but the baker is executed. Unfortunately for Joseph, the cupbearer forgets his promise, and Potiphar's slave remains in jail, innocent of all charges. The pharaoh in this story is believed by some to be Senuzret II, the fourth pharaoh of Egypt's 12th dynasty, who ruled from 1897 to 1878 BC. Two years pass and he has two vivid dreams of his own that he can't get out of his head. 
All he needs is someone who can tell him what it all means. Pharaoh has both dreams in the same night. In one, seven skinny cows crawl out of the river Nile and gobble up seven plump cows who are grazing among the reeds. In the other, seven healthy heads of grain grow from a single stalk. Then, seven skinny, scorched, wind-blasted heads of grain sprout and consume the healthy ones. Sensing that this might be some kind of premonition, Pharaoh is unsettled enough to consult his magicians and other wise men, but none of them can make any sense of what he has seen. Suddenly, his cupbearer remembers Joseph and explains the dreams which he and the baker had while they were incarcerated. He tells Pharaoh that a young Hebrew had interpreted everything for them with absolute clarity. Joseph is fetched from the jail, given a wash and shave, and brought before the most powerful man in the known world. Pharaoh gives the prisoner some context. He has had some concerning dreams, and has been told that Joseph can tell him what they mean. Joseph refuses to take credit for his gift, assuring Pharaoh that it is God who will give him the answer. It's unlikely that Pharaoh will have any concept of God, who at this point is really just a deity worshipped by Jacob and his immediate family, who live in one small part of Canaan. Still, he tells Joseph about the fat cows and the skinny cows, and the healthy and wind-scorched grain, and how his magicians have drawn blanks when it comes to divining any meaning from these. Joseph's interpretation is crystal clear. The two dreams both have the same meaning. There will be seven years of good harvests, followed by seven years of such severe famine that no one will be able to remember there ever being a time of plenty. The reason Pharaoh has two dreams, he says, is to emphasise that God is about to put his plan into action. Interpreting dreams may be one of his skills, but Joseph also impresses Pharaoh with his practical approach to the problem ahead. Joseph advises Pharaoh to find a wise man to manage Egypt's economy. Five commissioners then need to be appointed, whose job will be to store up one-fifth of the nation's grain during the good times, which is to be kept back for when the famine hits. That way, Egypt won't be ruined by the drought. Hugely impressed by Joseph and the god on whose behalf he appears to be operating, Pharaoh doesn't have to look far for his head of operations. In what has to be one of the most remarkable job promotions in history, Egypt's king puts a slave who this morning was still in prison in charge of running his country, with only himself above him in the chain of command. Just one generation on from Jacob's desert wanderings, his favourite son is dressed like a king while helping to run a pagan nation. Joseph is given the king's signet ring, which allows him to issue decrees on his behalf, and he wears Pharaoh's gold chain around his neck. By now, he is 30 years old, and is unrecognisable from the Hebrew youth who arrived in the slave market 13 years earlier. Many Bible experts agree that Joseph is most likely living in the city of Memphis, where he now rides around in a chariot and is given an Egyptian name, Zaphnath Pania. Pharaoh may be king, but all day-to-day -day power is Joseph's, and nothing happens in Egypt unless he says so. As a sign of the trust and respect he has for Joseph, Pharaoh gives him a daughter of the priest of Heliopolis as his wife. Joseph spends the seven years of abundance travelling throughout Egypt, collecting surplus food and storing it up in the nation's cities. 
Genesis describes how there is so much superfluous grain that no one bothers counting it anymore, and that it is as abundant as the sand in the sea. During this time, Joseph and his wife have two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, whose names are symbolic of Joseph's gratitude. Manasseh means forget, as he believes that God has helped him forget his suffering, and Ephraim means fruitful, as God has helped him thrive here in Egypt. As promised, famine hits the entire region, but because of Joseph's rationing, only Egypt has food. Its people make a beeline to Pharaoh to see if he can help them, and he directs them to Joseph, telling them to do whatever he tells them. The storehouses are opened, and the grain sold to those who need it. The hunger doesn't respect national boundaries, and soon Egypt's neighbours arrive to buy grain, among them one particular family from Canaan who have no idea that they have a deep and close connection to Pharaoh's second-in-command. Hundreds of miles to the north, Jacob has heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Sick of his son's inaction, he tells them to stop sitting around and to get themselves down to Egypt where there is plenty of food. For him, it's a matter of life and death. Ten of the brothers make the journey, but Jacob holds Benjamin back. He is the only surviving son of his beloved wife Rachel, and too precious to lose. What should be a relatively straightforward trip takes a dramatic turn for Joseph's brothers. Years after he's been uprooted from his father's farm and thrust into slavery in Egypt, Joseph is suddenly and unexpectedly confronted by the men who first tried to kill him, then opted to sell him, isolating him from his family and everyone he loves. The brothers remain oblivious to all this. The Joseph who they encounter on their arrival in Egypt is clean-shaven, speaks through an Egyptian interpreter, and is the second most important man in the country. He also chooses to hide his identity from them. Why would Reuben and the others assume that this was the boy who they watched disappearing with Ishmaelite traders some 13 years earlier? Joseph's initial response is gruff. He wants to know where the men come from, and as they prostrate themselves before him, Genesis describes how he is reminded of his dreams, which predicted exactly this situation. Keeping up the pretense, Joseph accuses the men of being spies who are searching out weaknesses in Egypt's defences. The brothers protest that they are simply a bunch of hungry Canaanites hoping to buy food, but Joseph appears adamant that they are sizing up Egypt's vulnerabilities so they can launch an attack. The men insist that they are brothers, that they have one younger brother who stayed at home with their father and another who is no longer with them, a fact which Egypt's prime minister knows only too well. The only way Joseph can be sure that their story adds up and that they are not spies, he tells them, is for one of them to return here with their youngest brother. He then puts the men in jail. After three days, Joseph appears to have relented and is happy for nine of the men to return home with grain for their families, while one of them remains in prison until they arrive back with their youngest brother. The men are convinced that they are being punished for ignoring Joseph's pleas for help years earlier, which in a way they are. Reuben reminds the others of his warning not to harm Joseph and has no idea that his brother can understand everything that they are saying about him. Overcome with emotion, Joseph has to turn away. 
Once the tears have stopped and he has composed himself, he has Simeon bound up and taken away. It's possible that Simeon is chosen by Joseph to remain in Egypt as it separates him from Levi. The two were heavily involved in the revenge against Shechem and might also have conspired in the plot to kill Joseph. By being separated, they are unable to scheme with one another and get in the way of Joseph's plans. One man down and with readers still unsure whether Joseph is going to punish them or welcome them into his family, the remaining brothers are packed back on their donkeys with sacks of grain as well as some food for the journey. On their way home, however, they make a shocking discovery. That night, one of the brothers opens his sack to feed his donkey and realises that it doesn't just contain grain. To the man's dismay, the silver which he bought to pay for the food is still in his sack. By now, the men are properly afraid and assume that God is speaking to them in some way. Jacob is unsettled too when he hears the story, especially when he is told that the only way his sons can prove that they are not spies is to return to Egypt with Benjamin. As the men empty their sacks, there is an even more worrying development. The silver which one of them found the night before was not an isolated oversight. All nine sacks contained the silver that was meant to pay for their grain. Jacob is distraught. He blames his sons for depriving him of his children. Joseph died on their watch, Simeon is a prisoner in Egypt, and now they want to take Benjamin from him. Everything is against me, he cries. In a moment of rashness, Reuben vows that if any harm comes to Benjamin, Jacob can kill both his young sons. He begs his father to trust him to bring Benjamin safely home, but Jacob is immovable. Joseph is dead, and Benjamin is the only remaining son born to the wife who he loved. His death would bring his grey head down to the grave in sorrow, he says, and his son is going nowhere. Jacob believes that Joseph is dead and knows that Simeon is a prisoner in Egypt. Now, the only way of rescuing his son and bringing home much-needed grain is to risk losing his youngest child, Benjamin. The old man's world is unravelling. He has no idea that Joseph is alive and readers are yet to find out whether the man is plotting revenge or redemption. Out of options and with everything to lose and everything to gain, Jacob watches bereft as his nine remaining sons head away towards Egypt. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, for Sleeping Dog. Music is by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send comments and feedback to contact at holybible.com. <laughs>